Welcome to Global Journalist, a show by journalists, about journalists, and for journalists, and those who depend on our work. I'm CJ McGinnis, one of the producers. It has been three years since the Me Too movement went viral in the United States and globally. In 2017, American TV personalities Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose, and Mark Halperin were fired after revelations about their abuse of female coworkers. Has anything changed? How did newsrooms in other countries tackle it? We begin with Chi Matsumoto, a freelance journalist and former reporter for Asahi Shimbun in Japan. She talks about how Japanese women journalists joined the Me Too movement, which started in Japan in 2018. It's known there by the hashtag with you. There was a um, deputy uh, minister of finance uh, agency, finance ministry official. He was being interviewed by TV Asahi reporter. He asked her if he could touch her breast and if he can tie her up, you know, and he kept asking her, are you married? Do you ever do this thing kind of thing? And she had everything recorded. But her editors weren't too keen on airing the scoop. She, of course, when she came back to her office, she talked to her bosses and her bosses said, well, maybe it is best to keep it quiet because for you, for your sake. And she actually also wanted to do a story on that because she thought that this was a very serious offense. Uh, and especially, uh, it's a violation of the freedom of press. TV Asahi sat on the story. Eventually, another magazine reported on it. Matsumoto said downplaying the sexual harassment in newsrooms is not a new thing in Japan. And I have heard from a lot of women journalists it is true that it seems like this happens pretty often when, especially when women come out, like I said, it's not, it's not just in the media industry, it's in society in general. And it's global. Zara Hinkier, a Lebanese-British journalist who formerly worked for Bloomberg News and was editor of the award-winning book, Our Women on the Ground, said she also experienced harassment and did not tell anyone at the time. I was... Uh reporting on a story about the electric electricity crisis in Lebanon, which has been ongoing for for years now. Um, and I had an interview with a former high ranking official uh, who actually cornered me physically. Um, so it was more, uh, I would say, a borderline assault rather than just harassment. Um, and I managed to get myself uh, out of that situation. Um, but of course, it was extremely harrowing. I didn't tell anybody about it. I was, uh, you know, um, I was conflicted about, you know, why it happened, how it happened. Of course, I, I had done absolutely nothing wrong, but I think these are thoughts that many women go through. Um, and I didn't actually tell anyone about it at the time. Harassment also happens in the newsroom from teammates. There was a male colleague of mine who was persistently harassing me and who I um, reached, I reached the point where I felt I couldn't work comfortably anymore uh, being on the same team with this individual. So I informed my boss and uh, my boss uh, uh, then uh, suggested that perhaps it was the way that I, that I dressed or, or, you know, the, the friendliness that I, um, that I, you know, it's part of my character. Like I'm very friendly. Um, 
So of course I was furious, but again, I didn't get support. Concerns over other people's reactions and retaliation from authority figures caused Tinkier and many other female journalists to stay silent. Partially, one was driven by fear and concern and stigma and taboo about how people would react to this. And the other one was, and also a power imbalance, you know, because I didn't really have the power there. I was this young, very young female journalist. Um, and then the other one was more uh, a blatant lack of support from my boss in that particular situation, who was uh, uh, guilty, making, making me feel guilty. Like that, that's basically shifting the blame and putting it on the woman. Jill Geisler was one of the first female TV directors in the United States. Now she holds the Bill Plant Chair in Leadership and Media Integrity at Loyola University in Chicago. She advises media companies on how to change newsroom culture. She says sexual harassment and discrimination make members of vulnerable groups in newsrooms less inclined to speak out. You cannot separate harassment from discrimination. First of all, incivility is sort of the gateway to all of it. If you work in an organization where people can treat you disdainfully, it leaves you vulnerable to the thought that it doesn't pay to complain about anything else. And so oftentimes people have said, well, newsrooms are rough and tumble places. You know, we swear and we scream and, you know, just get over it. Have a thick skin, man up. But for a lot of people, that didn't have to be, doesn't have to be in many news organizations. And sometimes it was a refuge of people who just wanted to be abusive to others. And people who didn't like it didn't have a way to change it, so they'd leave. Japan's media industry has become the most male-dominated media industry in Asia, with a ratio of men to women at 7 to 1. Nearly three-quarters of female print journalists who took a survey from the Japanese Newspaper Workers Union reported that they experienced sexual harassment. In 2018, this is shortly after the TV Asahi woman reporter uh, filed that claim, we conducted a survey. This is 2018, July through August. And they did say, you know, some 74% of women said uh, they have experienced some kind of sexual harassment on the job, in the office or outside of the office. And some even more than once. 47% of women also said that they haven't just experienced this once in their reporter's life. Not just reporters, but um, they have experienced it several times throughout their career. In Japan, as in the United States, many journalism rookies start their careers covering police and local government. Many journalists endure sexual harassment on this beat. The perpetrators, the abusers, or the, the attackers, of course, most of them are bosses or colleagues, but surprisingly enough, they mentioned also cops, police, uh, persecutors, local government officials, or bureaucrats, politicians. And so when you start out as a reporter, you go and cover police, but you can't just go to the press conference. You have to actually chase them around, yeah? Night and day, morning, early morning to late night. And this is when you can get scoop. So the reporters are often uh, hanging around with police and the police know this power structure. You know, they know that they actually hold the information that, that reporters want. And this is not just police, but politicians are the same way, right? And so if, so that's what they play, the power game. And so if in exchange 
of information that reporters want. What do they what do they want from the reporters? That's what they were asking: sexual favors or certain special favors, right? And so this is very very dangerous in a democratic society where where media should be independent and where power should not intervene with with media like this. According to the International Women's Media Foundation's report in 2018, about 10% of female journalists did not receive full-time regular employment compared to almost 5% of men. When I first started out, I, was, um, I did work for the paper and I did work for a company, but I wasn't a full-time, uh, like that classic Japanese lifetime employment. I didn't have that. I was a I was hired on the basis of kind of like a contractual outsourced. It kind of continues, you know, with the foreign press agency that I worked the next, it also hired me the same way. And this is also um, seen widely seen uh, among women. Women take up majority of casual employment. And so I think that that was one of the reasons. And also um, because it was the trend ever since 2005, casual employment is increasing. So that's one of the reasons that was really frustrating. But of course, at the same time, there was a lot of sexual harassment in that office. In the Middle East, Hinkier documented sexual harassment in her book, Our Women on the Ground. It's a collection of essays by female journalists who write about their own experiences covering the Middle East. This is in the much more conservative societies, um, such as Yemen. Uh, and then there's also, um, beyond that, there's sexual harassment too, in some of these places where, especially in Egypt, which Iman Hilal, the Egyptian photojournalist, writes about, where being a woman in certain spaces will subject you and expose you to misogynistic and patriarchal behavior, and particularly as a photojournalist or as a female journalist in a male-dominated industry as well, because the industry itself is male-dominated. It becomes even more difficult to actually just be out there on the ground doing your job. In the Middle East, where the culture is very different from Japan, the challenges faced by women journalists start long before entering the job market. The challenges start at home. So you might find that their families uh, are uh, wary or nervous about their daughters um, or wives becoming uh, journalists because uh, it is so difficult for women to navigate male-dominated spaces in parts of the Middle East, and there, I think that there's a fear over their safety. So there's that element of it. A couple of the journalists had hidden from their families that they, that they were actually becoming journalists in the first place. So there's that element. Then there's the broader societal difficulties where um, in some cases, you know, movement, the movement of a woman from one place to the other in a male-dominated space is actually difficult in and of itself because some of these women need to be moving with, you would call them a mahram in Arabic, which is like a male companion. In Arabic, 
The term Maharam derives from Haram, which means illegal or prohibited in conservative Islamic countries. A Maharam, meaning a male guardian, can make decisions for women regarding marriage, where to live, where to get education, and more. Women cannot travel without a Maharam as a companion. And particularly when there's conflict, for example, in Syria, uh, Zainad Hayim, the journalist I mentioned, she found it difficult to move because not only did she have to have uh, someone um, with her at all times, she had to cover her hair in very specific ways. She had to wear very specific types of clothing. Um, so, you know, it's that was a combination of, of factors that led to that particular um, development where, you know, as a female journalist, she was limited in what she wore and she was limited in who she, who she could speak to and she was limited in her, in her movements, right? So um, I would say movement is probably the biggest one. Movement is probably the biggest difficulty. Another growing deterrent to women journalists around the world is online trolling. Journalists use social media for sourcing, reporting, and marketing their stories. Recently, it has become a forum for attacking them as well, often with disinformation. Hinkier said she experienced online trolling just last month. I recently experienced this myself because I was invited by uh, Saudi Arabia's G20 committee. They have a women's uh, arm of that called the Women 20 Group, and they uh, are hosting uh, a, an event about women. Um, uh, in October. So they uh, invited me to moderate the session online. And I decided I was going to say no to that because of Saudi Arabia's track record on women's rights. And in particular, given there are so many women's rights defenders behind, behind bars. After she tweeted her rejection for the invite and mentioned a Saudi journalist who is in prison, she received massive harassment on multiple social media platforms. Uh, insults were based on gender, based on my nationality, uh, attacking my credibility, uh, extremely vile and aggressive sexual insults sent to me in my private messages on Instagram um, and also on Twitter. And I got emails too, and it was it was horrific. Hinkier said the effort seemed organized. But it was like a troll army. I, I felt like this is a method of censorship and suppression. I received vile messages from Saudi trolls um, or pro-government trolls. I don't want to say Saudi, just pro-government, pro-Saudi government trolls um, who uh, uh, insulted me. Hinkier isn't imagining things. Victoria Vilk is the director of digital safety and free expression programs at PEN America. PEN America is a nonprofit that defends free expression in the United States and internationally. There are places where there are actual troll armies that are being paid by the state. They are part of the government. They are part of the intelligence service of the government or various other branches of the government. Sometimes it's public, sometimes it's not public, but reporters have done investigative journalism and found it out that are basically um, in a coordinated and deliberate way going after critics of the government, including journalists, activists, politicians, etc., um, to try to shut them up and to try to push them offline. And those coordinated efforts are often then joined in by um, kind of followers, people who are 
uh, fans and followers of the state, right, or supporters of the state. They might be paid by the state, even they, you know, if they're part of some company. There are PR firms that do this. There are actual PR firms that make money off of targeting reporters. Um, there are troll mobs in one country attacking reporters in another country for the kind of journalism that they're doing. Vilk says trolls' tactics are often the same around the world. The kind of core tactics you see are very overlapping everywhere. Like you see impersonation accounts, you see um, hacking, you see doxing, which is the leaking of private information like a home address or a cell phone or where somebody's children go to school. You see sexual harassment, you see threats of um, physical violence and sexual violence. You see a lot of um, attempts to discredit people by trying to tarnish their reputation or making up lies about their life or about their family or things like that. Besides outright harassment, women journalists most often juggle caregiving responsibilities as well. Jim Van Nostrand is the executive editor for the Columbia Tribune and Missouri State Editor for Gannett, a company that owns more than 100 newspapers. He says the Balancing Act drives many women out of the newsrooms. A dear colleague and friend of mine um, in Washington State at a newspaper I worked there, she was a city editor, I was the digital editor. We, we sat side by side. Um, and she had two girls, uh, two young daughters who were growing up, and she said, you know, I can't work till 9 p.m. every night. Um, I need to be home uh, to have dinner with them. And I've had, I've had men come to have this too, but this seems to predominantly affect, you know, women. Because fair or not, women seem to bear the brunt of, the, of, the, um, of domestic responsibilities. The high pressure of journalism and odd hours make it a less attractive career option for women who usually take more responsibilities of domestic work than men. Journalism is a very stressful field. Daily deadlines, constant pressure, you know, uh, when you make a mistake, it's very public. Your life is not your own. You're working weekends. Um, you're around the clock. You're on call 24-7. You know, as they get, as they um, marry and have families and other priorities in life, um, you know, sometimes it's like, I need to do something else. It's going to be less stressful. Even so, Van Nostrand thinks women are advancing in newsrooms in the United States. Many key leadership roles um, are filled by women. My boss is a woman. Her boss is a woman. Her boss is uh, also a woman. So some big companies have made some big inroads. People of color face higher hurdles. Van Nostrand says his company recently took a census of the papers it owns in Missouri. Of the 12 Gannett newspapers in Missouri, there is not one black journalist. Um, many reasons for that, I guess, historically. Um, I came to the company last September, so I wasn't part of building that, but it, it horrified me. Van Nostrand, who is white, isn't alone. Nichelle Smith is the coordinating editor of USA Today's investigations team. 
She has led several award-winning race and diversity projects and says that people of color are overlooked in the fight for women's rights in newsrooms. Much of the Me Too coverage has centered on very privileged white women and what they go through in Hollywood or what they go through in the upper echelons of certain professions as they try to make their way through. The real challenge for Me Too has always been where Tarana Burke, the founder, has placed it to begin with. The founder of the Me Too movement, Tarana Burke, is an American activist from the Bronx. Burke launched the hashtag that was retweeted more than 19 million times in that year alone after she created it. Burke is black, but Smith thinks the plight of women of color who have suffered sexual abuse still is not receiving enough attention. And I don't think that that as journalism collectively, I don't think that we spend as much time talking about Me Too from the perspective of women who are in our, our lesser caste places or women who are in our essential working places or women who are among the working poor or just the basic middle class. Um, they are not in a position to, to fend off unwanted advances. They are not in a position to sue or do much more about it uh, because they may, they may lose a job. And when they lose a job, they don't have people in Hollywood to tweet about them losing their jobs. Um, they just have the um, unemployment line to, to go get into and, and hope that they can get some food stamps to feed their family. Matsumoto says it is important to not only support women, but everyone who is struggling with discrimination in the newsroom. Each company is supposed to have certain office where women can go and report. Not necessarily just women, but if also men too, if they're um, experiencing harassment from their bosses or something, right? Uh, they should have the, the window, the office where they can report these claims. Now, there are two main ways for women journalists who have experienced sexual harassment can speak out. That is by talking to their female colleagues or with nonprofit women's organizations. Although female journalists and organizations have made changes, Geisler thinks the next step to breaking the glass ceiling is to include everyone in the work. That's sort of the collective work of all of us. I've had lots of really good people say to me, um, I'm a man who wants to be supportive of women, but I don't want to look like I'm mansplaining or virtue signaling, or I don't want to step in it. I don't want to do it the wrong way. Or I'm a person of privilege, and I really want to stand up for um, people who have been marginalized. Uh, how do I do it in a way, again, that um, that is acceptable and believable and credible and authentic? Geisler thinks reevaluating the hiring process is one of the best ways to improve diversity within the newsroom. So I think all of those glass ceiling issues are people tend to hire people who remind them of themselves. So men have to go out of their way to be as courageous as the general manager who took a chance on me in the face of his company saying, are you crazy? You, he's, he didn't hire in, you know, in his own image. He rocked the boat. 
And so you have to be intentional, whether it's um, about any kind of diversity. You have to be absolutely intentional about doing it. You have to make sure that your application pool is broad and deep. You have to make certain that your finalist pool is diverse. When managers still find a less diverse pool, Geisler says they should look at details such as use of words and job descriptions. If you say something like aggressive, competitive, somebody with a killer attitude, those those words literally tend to be um, turnoffs to a lot of women. You put words in there like collaborative, imaginative, groundbreaking. Those are those are more neutral words, if you will. Making hiring policies transparent and fair is the first step in the right direction. Geisler says there are other decisions newsrooms should take into account. During daily decision-making, women can also face discrimination that is not necessarily illegal, but still hurtful. I can make you feel small and inconsequential every time you come to work, and it's not necessarily illegal. I can kill the ideas you have for stories, and there's nothing illegal about that. I can give preferential treatment on assignments Um, because I just say that someone is more qualified or I think they do a better job. In the newsrooms, Matsumoto thinks decision makers can improve inclusion through their assignments. We often kind of divide the topics like, oh, politics and economy, they're basically for men and for lifestyle stories or for women, you know, that sort of thing. But I, I think Uh, that's not what I was trying to say. What I was trying to say is that even if you talk about politics or even if you talk about economy, business economy, you can talk about it in a way that that attracts women and other LGBTQ uh, or other people, um, other communities. If you're a professional journalist, that's what you need to do. So if people say, oh, I'm not very interested in politics. That's probably the media are not presenting it in the right way. Matsumoto believes more diverse newsrooms will bring more diverse audiences to important news stories. I often say that if we want to see changes in society, media have to change in the first place because media still do, even if it's old media, old media still have, especially in Japan, have a lot of influence, strong influence. And that's why we have to change from within and we have to change our perspective and we have to change our um, way. We have to raise our awareness within media industry. And that means that workers who are involved in making these news reports or or news programs, uh, we have to change our perspective to open up and have the diversity and present diverse perspective.
that's it for this edition of Global Journalist. This episode was produced by Zia Tang, Rebecca Zhang, and executive producer Taylor Freeman. I'm Cesar McGinnis, reporting from the studios of the Reynolds Journalism Institute at the Missouri School of Journalism. Thank you for listening.